It is uh, for me a great honor to introduce uh, Professor Jean Bethke Elstein for her keynote address after a day of intense discussion and uh, serious disagreements, but also one day we have all learned a lot from each other. I am introducing Professor Bethstein. Uh, Professor Stein, simply because my colleague and friend Robert George is not able to speak with the usual uh, rhetorical strength due to, I believe, laryngitis. But I hope to be able to, to absolve this duty. Professor Elstein is Laura Spellman Rockefeller Professor of Social and Political Ethics at the University of Chicago. You all know her. She has published many books, including the first one, Jane Addams and the American and the Dream of American Democracy. Who Are We? Critical Reflections and Hopeful Possibilities. Augustine and the Limits of Politics, and Democracy on Trial. She has been a, a fellow at so many places that is too long to enumerate that. So all we have to do, and all I would like to do with great pleasure, is to invite you all to welcome Professor Jean Bethlehem. Thanks very much. I know this isn't an ideal hour to listen to um, a talk because no doubt your stomachs are starting to rumble and uh, it's the time of day when we get a bit tired, but um, we've had an animated discussion thus far and I trust it will continue. I want first to thank uh, Maurizio for the introduction, uh, Robbie, wherever he is at this point, they're there. And, um, and Judy Rifkin um, from the James Madison program for all the hard work that they always do um, on these conferences and many others. Um, it's great to s greet some friends I haven't seen in a long time, George Kateb, Michael Walzer. Um, it's a real treat. So uh, thank you very much for this opportunity. Um, I'm afraid my presentation is going to be a bit gloomy. Um, you'll be happy that we're going to head to drinks, I think, after, <laughs> after this is over with. Um, but I want to uh, think about, to consider uh, what is going on with our elder brothers and sisters in, in post-Christian, post-Jerusalem Europe. Um, and I'm speaking uh, as a kind of interpreter of culture, trying to take account of the central features of our time and how we are to think about them. Um, I was asked uh, last November um, by an institute in the Netherlands uh, to speak very briefly on a panel held in Amsterdam about the Dutch euthanasia programs um, because they said they couldn't find anyone else who was willing to be critical of them. They, were, they, they had people who were quite enthusiastic endorsers um, but they had come up empty when it came to finding people to offer some criticism. So the origins of what I'm going to say tonight 
lie there, and then coming here gave me the opportunity to expand further. Now, I think I should say that I hope it doesn't seem amiss for an American to offer a criticism, a critique of what's happening in Europe right now. Um, certainly, as Americans, we are subject to a relentless barrage of anti-Americanism um, from Europe today, um, uh, so much at times that one sometimes gets the impression that the ideology of anti-Americanism is one of the uh, is the glue that binds uh, an important swath of the European intelligentsia together. Um, so I guess it isn't, uh, isn't amiss. I want also to say that when one thinks about European nihilism, which is, after all, a tradition of thought, I'm not going to go into the prehistory here tonight, um, and I offer criticisms of Europe, these are also criticisms that we in the United States have to take very seriously as well, because again, we are in many ways the children of Europe, and we are not immune from some of the concerns that I will mention here tonight, although I think the burden of the discussion here today thus far has been how different in some ways, uh, especially sorting out the religion and uh, stage question, religion and civic life question, how different we are from um, much of the history of Europe. Okay. So with that, those caveats, uh, let me begin. And I'm going to begin with a question, which is whether Europe has forgotten who she is and what she stands for at her best, if we can think of a European culture. Um, these are sobering questions. They're not to be taken lightly. It is altogether too easy, I, I know, to preach the coming apocalypse and to revel in dark uh, and frightening images, but it is also altogether too easy to indulge in escapist rhetoric of this sort. There have always been problems. People always think things are worse than they are, or some people just have a nostalgia for a time in the past when things were simpler. They want an ordered world dominated by patriarchy, church, and so on. It is these escapist strategies that concern me the most as one hears them frequently enough in many of the organs of elite culture, whether the academy or journalism or the world of opinion makers. So perhaps the best way to begin is to consider what it seems to me Europe once stood for as an idea, as a great idea, and having done that, to assay whether the nihilism of, of which so many warned historically has in fact come to pass. Now, the word nihilism, as you know, comes from the Latin nihil, nothingness, conjures up the image of an abyss, of an empty void in which anything goes and there is no distinction of value that one can make. These are very foreboding notions. Uh, such concepts were overtaken in the past, including the not-so-distant past, by other ideas and other visions, a Europe of the mind, of the imagination, that embodied a culture of a certain sort. One recalls Albert Camus' famous letters to a German friend. Um, these were written during World War II in a, um, a resistance newspaper that Camus edited, um, in which Camus, speaking to his friend who was taken up with National Socialism, tells him that the difference between them is that the German Nazi thinks of Europe 
as a property to possess because they're only the weak and the strong. But he, Camus, and those like him think of Europe as the place within which he and they find their being. This Europe is a capacious place and it is a beautiful one. He writes in this third letter to the German friend, it is a magnificent land molded by suffering and history. I relive those pilgrimages, and it's interesting that he chooses that word, I once made with all the men of the West, the roses in the cloisters of Florence, the gilded bulbous domes of Krakow, the Haradshin and its dead palaces, the contorted statues of the Charles Bridge over the Ultava, the delicate gardens of Salzburg. Now, more importantly, Camus' Europe is not a Europe of nihilism. That, he argues, is what this German friend stands for, within which everything reduces to the same shade of gray and there is no truth to be, to be found. The German friend, according to Camus, had deduced the idea that everything was equivalent and that good and evil could be defined according to one's wishes. It's the end of the quote. And from this drew the lamentable but inevitable conclusion that the only pursuit for the individual was the adventure of power. Now Camus did not believe that the world had ultimate meaning, held nevertheless that the world was meaningful and that one could discern the better course, could make judgments about right and wrong. Not all opinions are created equal, not all views deserve respect. Now the territory now staked out in contemporary Europe as one's own property is, I would submit, the self itself, or an understanding of the self that's shorn of certain encumbrances, including the debris of old defunct moralities. This is a world within which, and as I said, Americans need to take these things to heart too, within which transitory pleasure dictates which way the self blows. Hither, thither, it matters not if it is my way. You have yours, I have mine. Now something of this attitude is surely manifest in certain ideologies of multiculturalism that make of difference a kind of sacred principle although no principle, of course, is considered to be sacred, but nevertheless, something like that. But difference tells us nothing in and of itself. Difference cannot possibly be good per se. There are ways of life, ways of being in the world that are brutal and stupid and ugly and need to be challenged. There are certain signs of difference that a human rights culture premised on human dignity cannot tolerate under that umbrella. Such a culture must, must believe in its own enculturating responsibility and mission in order to make claims of value and to institutionalize them in social and political forms. If a culture loses confidence in itself, as I believe much of old Europe, if you will, has done, it falls into the kind of agnostic shrug of the shoulders embedded in some of the ideas of multiculturalism that I have just described. Under such conditions or circumstances, multiculturalism is in practice a series of monoculturalisms that do not engage one another culturally much at all. Rather, the cultural particulate most enamored of gaining and holding power has an enormous strategic advantage. One day it proclaims, we will bury you. 
And I was thinking of this as I um, observed photographs in uh, the newspapers when I, I was recently in Scotland for a couple of weeks. Um, photographs of posters carried by radical Islamist protesters in London during the fracas over the Dutch cartoons that proclaimed, and they proclaimed all sorts of things, behead those who criticize the prophet and so on. But here's one that caught my eye. Europe is the cancer, Islam is the answer. Now, this illustrates what I mean. There's a perverted idea of Islam that confronts a Europe that has, I fear, lost a sense of who she is and what she represents. Now, Europe cannot remember who she is unless she remembers that the, she is the child not only of the ancient Greek and Roman worlds and the Enlightenment, but the child as well of Judaism and Christianity, the child of Catholicism and Reformation. If you abandon or dismiss any one of these dimensions, the idea of Europe dies. The widespread forgetting and withering of Europe's religious heritage is part and parcel of a regrettable loss of one aspect of historic memory. I have the impression sometimes that, that Europeans are burdened by too much historic memory of a certain sort, and then a, a, a forgetting of other aspects at the same time. So we now say that Europe is post-Christian. What does this mean? What does it portend? Well, it seems to me that it means that the window, and the, those who, who um, in fact celebrate this idea, that the window to transcendence is slammed shut. Uh, it means that all two human values alone pertain. But these human values, I would submit, are shriven by a prior loss of the conviction that there is much to defend about a normative concept of the human person and the best culture for human flourishing. Instead, we were invited to see them all as so many subjectivist construals, absent any defensible objective content. And unsurprisingly, what comes to prevail is a form of reduced utilitarianism as a rationale for taking steps that come enshrouded in nihilistic presuppositions, including, for example, the notion that death, that nothingness, nihil, is better than life. Uh, and if the world ends, so much the better. So, as I said in Holland, um, there's a sense often, when one thinks of the Dutch euthanasia program, that we do not want to be bothered with the infirm elderly, so we devise humane ways to kill them and proclaim that it is somehow their choice. And yet we know, so you're transforming the notion of the healer into someone who is simultaneously a killer. And we know that when that's happened in the past, it's been a horrific thing. Indeed, we know that people, among other things, uh, if they're in certain conditions or they're elderly, become afraid of even going to the doctor. We know that patients are being killed in the Netherlands without expre explicit expressions of patient of uh, consent, patient consent. The documentation, the admissions from medical practitioners makes that absolutely clear. Indeed, it was the testimony of a couple of Dutch doctors that actually def defeated, turned the tide on a euthanasia proposal in, in Canada uh, when they offered documentation of what's happening now. A new protocol for euthanizing newborns with disabilities 
has now been institutionalized, also in the Netherlands, and the doctor who authored the protocols, and the language seems to me very significant, um, a Dr. Verhagen, tells us how, in his words, beautiful it is when these newborns um, are dead, that having been killed, at last they are at peace. Now, the claims of the Australian utilitarian, and rumor has it that he hangs about in this area from time to time, um, Mr. Singer, appear to inspire many of the rationales for taking such measures. As you may know, Singer has predicted confidently that the view that human life is sacred will be definitively put to rest by the year 2040. And at that moment, we will have done, he says, with all such superstition. Now, it doesn't take much of a stretch of the imagination to suggest that by that moment, we will have made it altogether too easy to destroy lives, lives that we don't think are worthy of continuing to live, all in the name of compassion and humanitarianism and even cost-effectiveness. So it's a softer nihilism than what we've seen in the past, but it is nihilism all the same. In an interview in a British magazine in the summer of 2005, Mr. Singer stated forcefully that were he in a situation where he faced the quandary of saving either a mentally disabled child or an orphan child nobody wanted, or by contrast, normal animals from a, from a raging fire, he would take the animals. Now he added that if the child had a mother that would be devastated by the child's death because she imputes value to the child, this would tilt in the direction of the child. Unwanted orphans, by contrast, have no value. Now this is entirely consistent with the view that human life no longer possesses an innate dignity that we are just meat walking around and we can be turned easily into means to the ends of others, just as our own ambition in turn, the assumption is, is to turn others into our means. So we have a kind of master-slave scenario that comes to life, even as we congratulate ourselves on our more humane approach to certain issues. No good has ever come from narrowing and constricting our understanding of humanity from drawing the borders of who's incorporated into the moral community in a narrower and narrower way. Now, the Jerusalem side of the European heritage tells us that all are equally children of God. The disabled, the ugly, the bad-smelling, the lonely, all should solicit our care and concern. The utilitarian ethic would annihilate, again, we've got that nihil in there, that ethic and the name of progress and decency and ending suffering. But, as the anti-Nazi German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer insisted, even the most wretched life, the life that looks to our eyes as most wretched, is worth living before God. So does this tell us that without God or some transcendent principle, some horizon of hope and limits, which is what Camus kept struggling for his entire life, the wretched life is not worth living at all. And others have the power to make that determination based on utilitarian criteria. Someone may attach a value to us. We may have a market price, so to speak, a price but not a dignity. But should no one attach worth to us and we are too bereft 
or wounded to attach worth to ourselves, we become dispensable. And the final triumph of this notion will be a world in which the powerful have their way simply because they can, and because the ethical and moral barriers to what they want have all been removed. And this invites the Dutch ethicist Hans Reinders to argue that the final fate of people with, with disabilities, serious disabilities in a liberal society, such as his own, will not be a happy one. He argues we champion access. There's a strange paradox at the moment. We champion access even as we slowly but surely redraw the boundaries of humanity to exclude wide swaths of human persons. And with the new forms of genetic enhancement, as, as it's being called, and the emergence of a kind of genetic fundamentalism, we can arrive at a kind of perfected human model. I think we're going to see more and more of this. Over time, human rights will come to seeing so many arbitrary constructions that may, on utilitarian grounds, be revoked as if there is nothing about human beings such that they are not to be ill-treated or violated in certain egregious ways. Now, there's yet another irony in all of this. Catholicism, as you know, we've heard in the discussion this afternoon, has broadened its horizons to become a champion of human rights and of democracy, um, open advocacy of democracy in several papal encyclicals uh, by John Paul II, most notably Centesimus Anus. Democracy is that political form that speaks most fully to the principle of human dignity. It is the political form within which human flourishing is most likely to occur, um, the late pontiff argued. At the same time, much secular reason if it manifests itself as a narrow ideology of secularism, which is not to be confused with the secular as such, right? um, incre sorry, increasingly, I put the emphasis in the wrong place, increasingly manifests itself as this narrow ideology of secularism. Now, the secular, as you may know, derives from the Latin term used by St. Augustine to speak of the historic here and now. The term is saculum. It's the moment, Augustine argues, between the beginning and the end time. So the secular is what we're living in right now. And we speak of a secular state, we mean a state that isn't, a, there's no established religion. It's not a state that has an established religion. There's a separation, and I think altogether a good idea and an important thing, between the state apparatus and uh, religions in the plural. Now, secularism is an ideology that isn't content with just that kind of arrangement. It's an ideology that must mock religious belief and faith as superstition and celebrate kind of technological rationalism as the only proper way intelligent people think about the world. So the mystery and the complexity and the inexhaustibility of the world drain away. I think Charles Taylor has written very uh, tellingly about this phenomenon, and we are told that we must choose between science and faith as if the two are irredeemably driven to collide. And the mistake is, of course, to, is also to elide science to this kind of narrow technocratic approach. And because we all prefer to be on the side of enlightenment, we are compelled to take up sides against faith. For centuries, Europe was defined in and through a complex dialectic and dialogue between science and faith, 
certainly in uh, classic Thomism, uh, the attempt was to draw the two together, but you had this, this back and forth coming together, being teased apart, a dialectic and dialogue between belief and unbelief in the post-Enlightenment period. Unbelief was not reducible to today's uncritical faith in scientism. I think in his life and work, Albert Camus illustrates this dialectic and the brilliant sort of self and ideas that may emerge from it. Um, he was always in dialogue with belief. What happens when you lose one side to the dialectic? I think we are beginning to see what happens. You wind up with a monologue, and the unbelief side grows exaggerated and distorted into an ideology of secularism, fueled by subjectivism and fitting precisely into the standard definition of nihilism, namely, a world in which we no longer believe that there are reasonable warrants and defensible criteria on which to base judgments of value and truth. Now, I recall as a child thinking about the fact that in the old Soviet Union, people could not worship as they saw fit. Visiting the Soviet Union for the first time in 1979, I encountered, as everyone did who went there, church after church, um, turned into, you know, the great heroic tractor museum of the people or something like that, or, or, per, or permitted to be open for uh, worship a few designated hours a week. In Europe today, without state coercion, uh, the great cathedrals are either largely abandoned, they're empty, or they are museums. I was their tourist places. I was recently in Edinburgh, Scotland, as I mentioned, for a couple of weeks, and I read a news story about 300 deserted churches dotting the Scottish countryside. So thinking about these wee little kirks, you know, all orphaned all over Scotland. And, and the question was, should they simply be destroyed um, to make way for development? Or should they be turned into bars and cafes? And then the story went on to extol the clever way in which a particular developer was turning churches into wine bars. It seems that the church is the brick and someone makes an attractive wine bar. Now, when I, when I visit the great cathedrals in Europe, uh, someone remarked on this earlier today, one finds a few people, usually elder, elderly women at worship, uh, almost everybody else is a tourist, with cameras hanging around necks, meandering through. Now, the heart of Europe historically here turned into a tourist mecca, and Europe itself in its proposed constitutional preamble, we've heard about it today, unable to acknowledge Jerusalem, the heritage of Judaism, of Christianity, although Greece and Rome and the Enlightenment are noted. So once again, one side to the dialogue and the debate and the dialectic is abandoned. Should we not pause to reflect on these developments and their possible importance and to think about the implications over the long run? An argument made by the late Pope John Paul II held that the dignity of the human person, male and female, is inseparable from a view, a certain view of human freedom. And this vision of freedom is dramatically at odds with culturally prominent pronouncements that we are wholly self-possessing, 
that we are entirely sovereigns of ourselves, uh, akin to a kind of classic notion of a sovereign state. In the encyclical Evangelium Vitae, John Paul writes that if the promotion of the self is understood in terms of absolute autonomy, and the, the key word here is absolute, people inevitably reach the point of rejecting one another. Everyone else is considered an enemy from whom one has to defend oneself. You know, sovereign states are always poised warily against one another. The implications for society are dire, he continues, for society becomes a mass of individuals placed side by side, but without any mutual bonds. Now, in his argument against these absolutist notions of human freedom and self-possession, John Paul criticizes those who worship at this idol of the self, a certain notion of, of self-sovereignty, against which uh, Václav Havel, as some of you may know, uh, first president of the Czechoslovakian Republic post-1989, which he's also spoken against. Now this, it seems to me, is reminiscent of Camus' brilliant argument against those who worship at another idol, the idol of history, either the future classless society or um, future of, of unlimited uh, progress of some other sort, a world of perfect human self-control, that anything goes right now so long as it gets us closer to where it is, that perfect place we want to be. It doesn't matter how many are sacrificed along the way. We can justify annihilation in the name of some future perfect order. Let's refract the question in another way. Any sturdy democracy, which is another theme we've heard here today, requires citizens. If we think of human beings primarily as consumers or as sort of legal subjects, as I would submit does the proposed European Constitution uh, with the, these, these sort of pronouncements coming from a sort of top-heavy, highly bureaucratized, legalistic construction, that isn't going to be a sufficiently robust way to commit people civically over time. One of the glories of Western democracies historically has been their capacity to bring in diverse mixes of people, diverse in nearly every way in which people can differ, and to forge a one out of this many. The United States, I think, has done this remarkably well over time. And despite periods of anti-immigration bigotry in the early decades of the 20th century, it became ever more possible for immigrant communities in America to hold on to certain cultural aspects of their particular identities, so long as these could be expressed in civil ways consistent with the constitutive norms and rules and practices of democratic civil society itself. But what happens, let me just tell you, I have to just meander for a second here. When I was, when I was writing the biography of Jane Addams, who emphasized animating people's civic capacities, that was what she was so passionate about. And um, for in the boys and girls club, clubs at Hull House, at her settlement house in Chicago, uh, she gave uh, the kids who went through a kind of civics course, they each received a copy of a biography of Abraham Lincoln, who was her great civic hero, biography by Carl Schurz. And Adams, who was critical of much of what was going on in her own country, having to do with 
uh, anti-immigrant bigotry and lots of other things, nevertheless was un unflagging in her belief that there was something worthy to transmit, that there was something vital and important and good about the culture of which she was a part. What happens when a democracy loses a sense of its self-confidence, a sense of the fact that it has something to impart, it has a civic mission. And I think the first thing that happens is that it ceases to engage in the determined making of citizens. Ethnic communities are excluded from the broader streams of life uh, under the rubric of an allegedly benign multiculturalism, or they isolate themselves because they believe that, in fact, the available public square is hostile to them and anything and everything they represent. And in isolation, they fester in resentment, living in a twilight zone of semi-citizenship. As newer waves of immigration bring in peoples who not only have no experience of democracy, which is not uncommon, but bring with them, increasingly, officially sanctioned hatred of Western culture, the European democracies appear to have done very little, at least to American eyes, to engage in civic enculturation. In Great Britain, prior to 7705, radical imams used the cover of religious liberty, Finsbury Park Mosque was the most notorious, to recruit death-dealing militants who openly preached virulent anti-Semitism, scorn of democracy, contempt for anything Western, who argued that they hoped to see the eventual replacement of civic law by Sharia law, and who trained terrorists. It seems as if a kind of tacit deal, an informal deal was struck along these lines. Just leave us here in Britain alone and go, you know, you do your bad stuff somewhere else. But clearly it doesn't work like that. The hatred spills over as the Brits have learned into the streets and the subways and the buses. We've been talking about France today where the Muslim, this Muslim uh, minority, which is a large minority, lives in an angry subculture that's increasingly scornful of France and Europe in many of its uh, circles. It's high in criminality and intolerance, engaged in some circles and practices that openly defy constitutive principles of human liberty and freedom, including arranged marriages for girls as young as 11, honor killings and assaults, and several weeks ago, as we know, the torture and eventual murder of a young Jewish man simply because he was Jewish. So it's as if there is an anti-democratic, a kind of illiberal zone within the wider political body. And the French government has had a very difficult time naming this correctly, determining what to do, and yet it had no problem taking a determined stand against the headscarf. So even as they've been excruciatingly slow to recognize anti-Semitism, you know, the headscarf is impermissible. In the Netherlands, the notion of pillarization, that's P-I-L-L-O-R-ization, got distorted to mean cultural isolation for the immigrant Muslim population. They could sort of do their own thing. And unsurprisingly, this has led to the growth of problems there. It's also unsurprising that it was in Germany that a number of the 9-11 hijackers and killers got radicalized. 
picking up on one strand of contemporary Europe, the ideology of anti-Americanism, which is preached enthusiastically by many French elites, as some of the members of the French intelligentsia are, are admit and discuss and lament. I'm thinking of Bernard-Henri Lévy, whom I heard speak last week, who precisely talked about uh, the growth and the virulence of anti-Americanism. And then if we see the anti-Semitic strain that has resurfaced on the European left, it presents a very troubling picture. Now, democracies often have a difficult task figuring out how to deal with internal threats with those within the body politic who would destroy it if they could. Now, there are times when we've been too harsh, when we over-anticipated dangers and reacted uh, in a way that was not just, that was intolerant. But there are also times, I believe, when it's possible to be altogether too complacent, too, too convinced that economic uh, rights, consumerism, and expressivist self-sovereignty will carry us through. But there are signs of cultural implosion today in Europe and cultural exhaustion. Demographic collapse is one sign of an existential loss of hope, turning of the self inward upon itself. <clears throat> Europe suffers from many self-inflicted wounds that are endemic to a number of its societies, not all countries in the same way, of course, the wounds of a certain kind of self-absorption. One wonders what this loss of hope will lead to over the long run. Will Europe be able to deal with the daunting challenges she faces, including destabilization, the birth dearth, as it's being called, hence the unsustainability over time of the social welfare state because you have a radically shrinking tax base, a resurgence of anti-Semitism, and all the rest. Um, maybe it's too late, but it seems to me that if Europe remembers who she is, and that means taking account of the best in her, the totality of her heritage, uh, hence taking up the question of normative constraints on what people are permitted to do and how they are permitted to do it, um, try to figure out some reanimating ethos, some way to recapture civic energy and a civic commitment, perhaps the situation can be turned around. But it means remembering that Europe can extend itself to newcomers because, precisely because, she has something valuable to offer. And the question I'm putting is, how can a society sustain principles and commitments that derive historically from presuppositions of a kind of transcendentally sanctioned human dignity if that transcendent, transcendent dimension drains away, disappears altogether? Can you sustain the commitment to human dignity? And I'm speaking here of no radical leap of faith, but I'm speaking, of, again, of sustaining cultural memory including that which resolutely rejected the view that we are somehow forced to choose between faith and reason. This antithesis was rejected as early as the fifth century by St. Augustine and others who argued that understanding and belief do not stand in opposition, but they work together. Absent such remembering and persistence, 
Europe will continue down the path of what Václav Havel calls arrogant anthropocentrism, in which he also sees the face of European nihilism. In a recent essay, Pope Benedict XVI, himself a European intellectual, writes, in European society today, thank goodness, anyone who dishonors the people of Israel, its image of God or its great figures, must pay a fine. The same holds true for anyone who dishonors the Quran and the convictions of Islam. But when it comes to that which is sacred to Christians, then freedom of speech becomes the supreme good. This case illustrates a peculiar Western self-hatred that is nothing short of pathological. It is commendable that the West is trying to be more open, more understanding of the value of outsiders, values of outsiders, but it has lost all capacity for self-love. All that it sees in its own history is the despicable and the destructive. It is no longer able to perceive what is great and pure. What Europe needs is a new self-acceptance, a self-acceptance that is critical and humble if it truly wishes to survive. Multiculturalism, which is so passionately promoted, can sometimes amount to an abandonment and a denial, a flight from one's own things. Europe must reclaim what is best in its heritage and thereby place itself at the service of all humankind. Well, let me start, start to wind down here. I would... If, if, if any of this resonates with you, I would suggest that everyone should reread Camus' great essay, The Rebel, um, because there you have a powerful and poignant struggle with these poles of belief and unbelief, and how to hold on to a logic and a philosophy of limits uh, if you yourself are not a person of faith. This is a text that got him excommunicated from French intellectual life by Sartre and his minions, but Camus understood the dilemma and Sartre did not. Camus struggled. The unbeliever engaged with belief, and we could reverse it and say the believer engaged with unbelief, that often brilliant dialectic and dialogue essential to the European heritage. If you lose one term to the dialogue, what remains is a dreary and reductionistic monologue. In his great novel, The Fall, set in Amsterdam, Camus' world-weary narrator, Jean-Baptiste Clémence, says of modern European man, he fornicated and read the papers. <laughs> and now we might say he and she fornicates and surfs the internet. And I don't think that's necessarily an improvement. It's certainly not the stuff out of which strong, vibrant cultures are sustained. So to conclude, I want to offer a, a haunting postscript, at least I find it so. When I was an undergraduate over 40 years ago now, I attended a lecture by Sir Julian Huxley, avatar of the Enlightenment, a distinguished branch off the tree Huxley. Now, Sir Julian was a proponent of scientism. He was enthusiastic about eugenics. He'd been a big promoter, promoter of eugenics in the 1930s. Um, onward and upward with progress and all the rest. Uh, he was very formidable in his de demeanor and his absolute certainty. He had no doubt at all what the future was going to be. So without any qualification or hesitation, he pronounced a prediction, namely that by the year 2000, 
religion would have disappeared having been supplanted by the total victory of scientific rationality. Nationalism would have disappeared having been supplanted by the total victory of some kind of benign world order. And the view of the human person he celebrated that evening was that of the sovereign individual, the master of all he surveys. There was no soul to fret about. There was only mastery to achieve. So there's that moment. And then let me remind us of a very different moment that we all know. Um, in April, the funeral last April of Pope John Paul II, and I was very struck as his body was carried out into St. Peter's and the pallbearers made a circle through the crowd of millions and then carried him into the basilica as the crowds were weeping and applauding and singing that we were witnessing a reality of another sort, another future, even another international order there embodied than the one imagined by Sir Julian. To the sounds of singing and weeping and applause, his body was accompanied to its final resting place as the litany of the saints rang, saints rang out with its beautiful haunting chat, chant that tells us that we are not alone on our earthly journey. Now the view of the human person celebrated in the litany of the saints honored by the spectacle of the millions, unexpected millions, many of them young people, who poured into Rome to celebrate and to mourn is very much that of the ensouled body, the notion that we can keep body and soul, mind and spirit together. Um, that life is an exquisitely social one. Its meaning and purpose both imminent, you know, here and now, uh, yet framed by, again, some notions, some understanding of the transcendent, which represents the West in general and Europe in particular. Huxley's optimistic view, vision of a a progress unencumbered by moral fretting, or John Paul II's argument uh, for democracy, uh, human rights, and against, against moral relativism, what he called the sign of contradiction. Uh, there's a big gap between these positions, obviously. One that sees human life as encompassed entirely by birth ending definitively with death, with birth and death coming increasingly under techno-scientistic management and control, and by contrast, a view of human life as a gift given meaning because we understand that our good is not ours alone, but it's a good that links us to a world of others, our brothers and sisters, although they may be foreigners, they may be strangers, and they might even at this moment be hostile. Um, that we should wind up, in a sense, poised between such powerful and contrasting worlds uh, reminds us, I think, of the complexity of our distinctive uh, inheritance and the multiple understandings of self and culture and society and civic life deeded to us by our shared history. So I want to repeat that Europe was defined for centuries in and through this energetic, genetic dialogue and debate and encounter, right? And that what happens when you lose one side to it is that the side left standing is distorted in its isolation and that this ushers into the cultural ennui that we now see in so much of Europe. If human beings do not tend to that which is good, if indeed they no longer believe in any such thing 
It creates a vacuum, a kind of negation, uh, a draining away from that which is good, which is what in Christian theology is called evil. As cultural critic Theodore Dalrymple writes, when the barriers to evil are brought down, it flourishes. And evil need not take the form of a serial killer or a Hitlerian monster. It can come to us, as Reinhold Niebuhr reminded us over and over, as a kind of angel of mercy and light. It can take the form of medical practitioners empowered by the state, wielding needles aimed to killing handicapped newborns rather than caring for them. Uh, It can take the form of isolating and neglecting immigrants. It can take the form of ignoring antisocial behavior and cruelty until it turns into open and widespread criminality. It can take the form of an indifference that in the name of toleration permits a zealous minority to call for the murder of those who have drawn cartoons, however stupid these cartoons may have been, and for more suicide bombers and killing of innocents. It is this retreat from defining Europe that is the face of European nihilism, and I fear that when a reaction comes, it is likely to be extreme and distorted as indifference has prevailed for far too long. The great Europe of the imagination will one day die if the Europe of the here and now withers into something no longer recognizable as Europe at her best. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Professor Einstein. I opened the conference this morning, stressing. I'm just wondering how much I've shocked George Kateb. I'm just not sure. Um, Wait and see. He's a resourceful person, as you know. He's a, a, I was, uh, this morning, I opened this conference, stressing that a serious uh, debate between uh, American scholars and European scholars was long overdue. Uh, (laughs) And after (laughs) Professor Einstein's presentation, I am convinced that this is exactly the case. There is a lot to discuss from both sides of the Atlantic. And with this, it's time to open the discussion. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Let me, I've seen the first gentleman over there. Can you repeat your name, please? Yes. For everyone, I mean, I know who you are. Yes.
guys should we'll just sure. collect com some comments and not respond. Yes, the gentleman with the white shirt. Sure. Can you introduce well, yourself? My name is Roy Thank you, yeah. Professor Denim. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Tina. Yeah. In your presentation today and in uh, Russ's presentation earlier today, America comes off pretty well uh, in comparison to Europe. And I suppose you can always make yourself look better if you pick the opposition correctly. Um, I wonder, though, you know, America, if, if America is in some ways um, retaining in the dialectic between Jerusalem and Athens, or some version of that, if America is retaining that dialectic and Europe is increasingly dismissing Jerusalem, isn't there, though, a tradition which suggests that America is a logical extension of Europe, that America is, by far, a sort of westward the course of empire goes, that, that, that the true future lies in America, um, in perhaps a progressive sense. I was struck that most of the figures that you talked about today representing the way in which you can retain that dialectic that you recommend are Europeans. It's Camus and Bonhoeffer and Havel, uh, John Paul II and Benedict. Uh, 16. Uh, on the other hand, a representative of the soft nihilism you suggest was Peter Singer, who's an Australian, but who yeah, was here. Yes. Uh, that's not mistaken. Yeah. Um, so America may be the alternative, but doesn't America also in some ways exhibit maybe even more extreme versions of what you are criticizing in Europe? I think of this is the land that in some ways, you know, we, we have cryogenics and new age religion. My God, we have California. <laughs> so, I guess what I want to ask you is, what is the source, or what do you think is the source of America's capacity to retain this dialectic you recommend, um, if it's not fundamentally European? And maybe a way to point this question is, whether America is in Europe's future, or whether Europe is in America's future. Um, I'm going to, I'll start, uh, Patrick, with your comments and work my way backward. Um, I, I think you may have come in just a little bit late. I said at the beginning of my presentation that uh, Americans should take heed uh, in the criticism that I was offering because America is by no means immune um, to the kinds of um, developments that I, that I sketch to the, um, to, um, um, to the characterization of culture that I offer. 
Um, so I'm, I'm simply in many ways going to take much of your point um, that if we take some of what's happening in Europe as kind of early warning signs of certain kinds of developments, I think we're also obliged to look at some of the some of our own sort of runaway developments in the area of, let's say, genetic engineering and genetic enhancement, and to argue that that partakes of the very, um, of the very features um, of soft nihilism that I was sketching and, and underlining. So there's no, no possible way that we are completely immunized. What strikes me, though, about the United States is there still is, as you said, uh, this tremendous amount of cultural energy and, and this dialectic still goes on, this energetic debate and exchange. And I suspect it has to do with some of the things we talked about already in here today. The fact that uh, America never had a religious establishment, uh, that religious free exercise led to this bewildering explosion of, of, uh, of religions, mostly of the Christian variety, um, but that in religious free exercise, you have so many particular sites, so many of them, uh, that keep alive their own uh, understanding and approach and response to some of the developments we're talking about, that if there are some, as I think mainline Protestantism has done with some of these developments, that capitulate, there are many others within the religious community that do not, that keeps the thing going in a way that it hasn't, uh, it hasn't done in Europe. So uh, I do think there are some things we've done better, certainly in uh, the incorporation of immigrants and so on. But uh, we, are, we are by no means in a, in a special category where we don't have to think about these things. And I, I reference the Europeans in, in a good way because I wanted to use Europeans to criticize Europe, if you will, to draw upon these great Europeans to criticize the developments in Europe. And the title, after all, was European nihilism. So, um, as to the uh, discussion of um, the gentleman who argued that we should no more lament uh, what's happening down uh, now in post-Christian Europe than, uh, than the uh, Christians uh, lamented uh, the destruction of some of the symbols of, of, uh, of antiquity and the, and the debate um, in which Symmachus uh, was arguing um, in behalf of their retention and saying something like, to the truth, to such mysteries, there should be many paths. And so if I remember the particulars of that debate, um, and you talk about this vibrant Christianity, absolutely true. But one of the, one of the remarkable things um, that um, I've noticed, and many others have noticed, if it were just me, I think I was peculiar, but, uh, and should rethink my position, but so many have noticed it. There's, there's nothing vibrant about post-Christian Europe. I mean, you know, what, what you see all around are, are signs of weariness and signs of a sort of diminution, hollowing out of civic energy. You know, people can't decide what it means to be French or Italian or what. You sort of know what it means to be French, but then you've got this problem with the immigrants. You have these terrible clashes. That's not going to go away anytime soon. Europe hasn't been able, the idea of Europe hasn't been able to generate you know, a, a strong, vibrant notion of a European identity with its, its civic symbols and its capacity to ongoingly regenerate itself. I, I see you shaking your head, but I'd like to see counter evidence that there's something vibrant going on. I mean, certainly the, <clears throat> the rejection of the European uh, Constitution by the people in 
uh, France and in the Netherlands uh, after so much effort was put into passing it, uh, and yet these are also cultures that are quite energetically post-Christian, suggest to me that Europe is simply tied up in knots. And there isn't that energy, those signs of vibrancy and of renewal that one would look to. It all seems backpedaling and it seems very tired, <clears throat> very sort of worn out in a way that I think we should all be very worried about and be very regretful about. When I was in Germany, um, and again, I, I see you strenuously shaking your head, but you know, I've had these conversations in Germany, in France, in the Netherlands, in Scotland, in England. I've had these conversations in Italy. I've had them in <clears throat> Casablanca with a group of Arab Muslim intellectuals about the difference between uh, the United States, the American understanding of the secular and radical French laicite. Um, so I think I have some sense of things, and I'm struck by those who are prepared to have these conversations you know, by the fact that there is this sense of a kind of exhaustion. Once when I was in Germany just a year and a half ago, uh, it was a group of about 30 Germans and about five Americans. And uh, one of the German participants, uh, this was about um, humanitarian intervention. One of the German participants argued that he had been absolutely committed to the notion that nobody should ever intervene anywhere. And then Bosnia happened. And he saw what was going on in Europe's backyard, and Europe not doing anything about it. Um, and I remember the conversations at the time with my friend Martin Palusz, who was one of the leaders of Civic Forum in Czechoslovakia, and was then the deputy foreign minister of the Czech government, and how horrified he was by European inaction. He was not very pleased about American inaction either, but this was in Europe's backyard. So this gentleman said, now, Europe has to be able to deal with these kinds of things. It cannot permit these to happen. And the general reaction, and one person articulated it as if it was just a slam dunk answer. There could be no, no, no rejoinder. Well, but if we sent German soldiers, some of them might die. No. As if, as if there's nothing worth defending. You know, there's nothing worth defending. There's nothing worth risking a life for not even to spare people the horrible depredations that looked uncannily like some of what happened in Europe, in the totalitarian era. So those, to me, are all signs of, of, of a kind of cultural exhaustion. And you, you mentioned something about the, I brought the words of religion in somehow, but, but, but you know, they're, they're, I, it seems to me that um, there are things we look back with appropriately with horror but that the notion that you're quite prepared to sort of wait and see how it all works out means that we're, we're, we, just, we're, we just stand around and we're mute when we think that there are developments that need to be named and need to be criticized and need to be understood. And I, I just don't think that's one's, I think one's responsibility lies in trying one's best to understand it and to, uh, even though it discomforts people, to bring it forward. Um, on the first question from Dan about, I mean, Dan, I don't know what to do except just to nod my head and say you're right. I mean, the, the, the issue about that period of reflection, the question would be uh, how best to understand it. Now, some have suggested, as you know, um, and you know the French literature better than I, uh, that, it, that after two world wars, you know, the, the, the horrors of European bellicism coming to the fore of World War I and then the horrors of totalitarianism, that there was just so much 
exhaustion that people didn't even have the energy uh, to bring to bear on the kind of project that you're talking about. But you can also see that there are some, there's certainly some figures who made the attempt and people who try very strenuously to do what you suggest. But what strikes me is that often those folks wound up within their own milieu being as what, what happened with Camus, being, being ostracized and virtually written out of the, the, the life uh, of, of the intelligentsia. So is that the sort of thing you have in mind? I mean, I just don't know how fully to account for it. I don't know if you, obviously you don't think anyone has either. Um, some, some admirable, yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think and I think one of the ways that we that we comfort ourselves, uh, considering some of the things that are happening now, is to say, well, it doesn't look anything like uh, you know, the uh, the gulags or or the camps. Um, so it can't be all that bad. Um, and that's why I said it's a kind of softer version. Of, of nihilism, and it's, it's certainly very interesting in the euthanasia debates in the United States, and I think the data holds for Europe as well, that the very populations that are supposed to most eagerly want this, you know, doctors mandated by the state to kill people if they want to be killed, are the ones who are most resistant to it, the elderly, the infirm, people with disabilities, because they know exactly what's going to happen when the state gets into that kind of business. Thank you. And yet it's for their benefit, Gene, you, I, I don't know, but you might be, uh, how shall I say, happy to know that you spoke of uh, cultural exhaustion about Europe, and Professor Tommaso Pado Schioppa, an, an economist, former president of the Central European Bank, spoke uh, just two months ago in a very impressive paper of Europe being affected by melancholia. Melancholia is the passion that comes, is a dry passion that yeah. brings to lifelessness. Yeah, kind of At least we have a point of agreement. I'm not usually in agreement with bankers, or is it? <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose it can happen. Life is full of surprises. <laughs> Something to offer. Something yeah. to offer. Yes. And then one of the problems that progressive politics faces is that a cultural legacy is an impediment to a new future. Um, and cultures are painfully difficult to disaggregate. Yeah. It's very difficult to do surgical changes, if you will, on a culture to cut out the part you think is an impediment to some new possibility. Uh, and this becomes, I think, this reaches a crisis. And cultures that are especially interested in forming personality. And the parts that we typically think most worth passing on are the parts that are most effective, uh, that affect most the sense of self. And so I think well, my thesis would be that part of uh, what this time Europe and not, and I think also, for that matter, the least of all American society as well, is that um, we, have, we cannot sustain both the politics of personal liberation and the conviction that the culture has something worth transmitting. 
and and uh, your your and your reason for suggesting that I take it um, the the sort of unstated part of your question. Some of the assumptions is that um, you you cannot develop out of that sense of of a nigh, nigh untrammeled notion of the self and his or her preferences that there's no way that out of that could emerge some sense of uh, responsibility for others and for the culture and some sense of solidarity that alone makes possible people thinking in the, along the along the lines that you that you and I have both referenced is that what you have in mind I have a more modest point, more modest point maybe right. over over uh, re refreshments because uh, we have okay. a long list okay. Yeah, be sure to catch me about that because I, I think you're again you're right. The the the, uh, the only question would be how how are we to best understand this? But as I said, if your view of selves is that we're all akin to to sovereign states, what do sovereign states do with one another? Well, they make treaties, maybe, or they fight. You know, so the the self be you know I have to worry about them because they're they're gaining on me, and you know, and you you're into that kind of that kind of scenario because somehow. Um, any uh, any way in which I, if you will, make space for others is a diminution of me. Something's taken away from me. I'm I'm depleted rather than replenished uh, through uh, sociality. So I become more and more this 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 isolate. And I think that dynamic is certainly palpable. It's palpable in this culture too, in some in some parts of our American culture. But I think it's palpable. Let me collect. Can I collect three more questions, Jean? Yeah. Um, yeah. Sure. I have Couple this more. gentleman yeah. here. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate your talk. Great deal. I'm looking for a little bit of hope. Okay. Uh, for Europe, and I wonder if it's not to be found in the unwillingness of Europeans to insist that Christianity be treated with respect, to insist that Judaism and Islam be treated with respect. Mm -hmm. Is that not a Life left yet? Right, in other words, in a perverted kind of way, you said that this was a sign of self loathing. I wonder if it's not a sign of loathing of God, of hatred of God. In a way, perverted, brand new people who hate God are more human than people who are indifferent to God. Whether that's a kind of sign of mm -hmm. okay. Another question? Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting that some of the people that you mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, 
strong defenders when it comes on to this, this um, sense of, of law and national. I have time for one last question. Can you? Can I take the, other, the last one? Sure. And, and uh, I, I apologize with everybody else, but we have time over refreshments and wine. Yes. Uh, my name is Holly Blackman, and I've been Peter Singer's teaching for four years. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel compelled to defend him, even though I don't subscribe to all of his medical ethical positions. Uh, and that is, Peter is not an, uh, an, uh, a nihilist if one says that one, a nihilist is one who doesn't believe in objective reality. Um, well, I'll, let me start with uh, with, with Singer. Um, it would be it would take a much longer discussion for us to uh, unpack all of this uh, and the, and what is uh, wrong and weak and insupportable about the species of utilitarianism that he advances. I think it's a I think it's a a moral philosophy with way too few ideas. Uh, to sustain certain really complex uh, claims. And certainly, uh, I don't think that within Singer's understanding of it, uh, given that he believes we need to get rid of any notion of, of, of uh, fundamental sort of rock-bottom human dignity because our value comes from it being imputed to us, it strikes me that there's just a, um, that, that, that is a, an argument that leads inexorably to the kind of erosion of human dignity over time that I think he himself has advanced in many of his arguments about persons with disabilities and so forth. As to his humanitarianism, uh, I think again that it's a kind of watered down generalized beneficence uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't really concretely deal with uh, how we are to think about our neighbor, how we are to put our shoulders to the wheel, how we are to deal with those and I think that I can defend this, how we are to deal not just with, you know, sort of generalized notions of those folks over there who need, who need some help somehow, um, because there's, no, there's nobody who thinks that uh, somehow people who are bereft or in need should be left uh, to fend for themselves. The question is how concretely can we approach these issues? How concretely can we devise public policies and I would say that the, the, the rock-bottom principle, again, of human dignity has to be at the heart of this, or you're going to wind up with um, a, a kind of compassion built on pity and on the dispensability of persons uh, who some, whose lives are somehow not, uh, not worth living. Um, but as I said, it would, it would take a much longer discussion to get it to unpack the utilitarian philosophy that he is an advocate of. 
Um, on the issue of American consumerism and your very interesting point there, um, it seems to me that is certainly one can make a case about the advance of consumerism in uh, in the United States, but I think uh, Europe is, is obviously not immune. It, I don't know if you were as struck as I was when the euro was 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 launched. You know that the cons it was overwhelmingly a commercial enterprise and a commercial venture. And here you're going to have this somehow this symbol of European unity is going to be the euro, and it's all you know how will it float on the money markets and so forth. And there there wasn't a shred of discussion about the civic. Uh, dimensions of any of this. As to holding, uh, holding some of the self-absorption in check, yes, the question is how do we best do that? And I think that, that what that says, what, what Americans do is not just, it's not just that, um, you know, they, there's faith in some abstract sense that does that, but that if you look at the levels of civic participation, I don't mean people going out to vote, but I mean the ways in, you know, what happens in Europe, what happens in the United States as far as people tending to their neighbors in a concrete way, uh, getting involved in civic activities, getting involved directly, uh, you know, in, in, um, in the suicide hotlines and, and mentoring programs. And one thing, Americans do much, much more of that because we have never been convinced that you can simply take these obligations of responsibility and sublimate them entirely into into kind of, into certain sorts of policies, and so so perhaps you were as amazed as I was a couple of summers ago. Was it the summer of 2003 when, during the August vacation break, 15,000 people died in France? You know, um, these are elderly or um, who were just left alone, people can't be bothered to come home from their vacations to see if grandma is okay. So, you know, 15,000 people died. And, and a lot of that was also because doctors and nurses go on vacation and they didn't want to come back from, from their break. So I think that those are, you know, and somehow, again, you know, we have public policies in place and don't, don't call upon me directly to take this direct kind of responsibility. On the issue of maybe there's some paradoxical hope in the fact that Europeans do not treat Christianity with respect. Um, uh, some paradoxes may be just too deep to, uh, to, uh, to, to discern what might come from them, but uh, I mean, I don't think you're entirely wrong. I mean, I think that there can be some notion that there's a threat there, but obviously if something like this continues, if this continues over time, it's unclear to me that there's going to be anything in there that could spur some kind of renewed energy or interest in what does it mean to be one's brother's keeper, what does it mean to be involved in a world in which, as I said, you are not alone and you are called upon in certain ways. Um, so uh, the fact that there may be a threat perceived means, it seems to me, that you will ongoingly create barriers to hold that threat at bay. Um, and um, among other things, we'll continue to try to discredit or even disallow certain voices in public discussions, that you will not permit certain leaders um, of, um, you know, um, Catholic moral thought or Lutheran moral thought and so on, uh, who do not take the view that subscribes entirely to the menu of what is considered, um, you know, the um, uh, varieties of human rights that those people are to be discredited and not permitted to get into positions of authority or power and all the rest. And that's another way not to have the debate. You know, so there are all sorts of ways you can contrive not to have the debate. 
Um, and, um, and I think that, uh, that uh, one of them is the one you described, and that uh, the paradox at one point is simply going to go away. I mean, it will just be, you know, there will, just, there, there will not be anything that will threaten anymore. And probably then you can, you can, you can be tolerant, <laughs> you know, at that point because there's nothing, there's nothing left to fear. After uh, the discussion of Professor Rischstein's wonderful uh, lecture, I have uh, only uh, two little, very little hopes, uh, particularly having listened to the her analysis of the European situation. One is that, Jane, uh, after all, I'd like to keep believing that many people who tried to make the ideal of a European Union possible did not have in mind the euro. I know. I know, they, as did. You know, I know they did. They had in mind the ideal or the hope of a Europe yeah. without wars. I know. That was I know. The idea. And what's happened to this? And what yeah. has happened? There are still there, and some of us still believe in that, yeah. and we, we try to survive. And the transatlantic yeah, yeah. And the other hope that they have is that reading about my favorite philosophers, who are, as you, as you know, Renaissance mm -hmm. philosophers, mm -hmm. they all said they had one point of agreement, was that the best cure against melancholia, which is a dry humor, comes from earth, is a good glass of wine. And, uh, <laughs> thank you, Gene.